Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Lay Foam. Today we will be discussing the 1973 Spanish film The Spirit of the Beehive. And according to IMDb, um, it takes place in 1940. And after watching the film Frankenstein, a sensitive seven-year-old girl, Anna, living in a small Spanish village, drifts into her own fantasy world. And uh, if you're here for the first time, um, I'm your co-host, Richard, and here with me today, Kevin, and Tyler, and Patrick. And in this episode, it was actually Kevin who picked this week's episode. Uh, Kevin, do you want to talk about, um, and I forgot to say the director's name, um, Victor Edrice's Spirit of the Beehive. Yeah, I picked this movie because I'm not entirely sure why. I mean, I think that um, I've seen it before. I even think that, like, Pat, you and I had probably, like, exchanged files or something like that, like, a really long time ago. And, it, you know, the title just sounds interesting. But I, I was reminded of it because I just started listening to a band who is named after the movie. And upon looking at the poster on the Criterion channel, um, there was just something so captivating about it. It's uh, one, I mean, it's two young girls standing on the train tracks. One of them has their head down to the rails listening to the train coming, and then the other is just standing in the middle of it. And it felt like a very poetic image, and I just decided to recommend it. And I'm very glad I did. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, what are some of your guys' initial impressions on it? It's a, it's a very sweet movie. Very cute. I think the, the openings are very long. The introduction of the film, tra the traveling film show. But uh, the part, like, made me, like, have a big old dumb grin was when... Both Anna and Isabel, yeah, Anna and Isabel are running to their home, and they're just doing like the straight up little kid thing. Like they say, Frankenstein, one of them just does a little kid shriek, and it's just so endearing. Like that's exactly how kids are. I've been around kids like that. They just have a capacity for fun and play that you lose as you get older. And I was, I was, yeah, I was captivated the second I saw the film. Already captured it at some level. Yeah, I uh, I got the same vibe, like, when, in the beginning of the film, when Anna is watching Frankenstein, like, she, both of Anna and Isabel were just amazing actors as well, uh, but when she's watching it, you can just see it on her face, it's like, childlike wonder, like, she's just, like, captivated by Frankenstein, and it just, yeah, it reminded me of just being a kid, and you see, like, whatever that one movie you watch that just, like changes your whole perspective yeah um 
I thought it was very sweet too, or at least um, in the film's introduction, you get uh, like you're kind of uh, profound by their world in which they live in like a very small uh, area, like small town, and they get this <laughs> get to watch this little film, uh, Frankenstein, a horror film. I don't know, like being a kid. <laughs> At the time, if your parents would allow you to watch that, but I think something like that, um, yeah, it would probably f profound me if I was on a, you know, six years old, because you there's just so much about the world that you don't know yet. There's so much about life and death that um, you haven't even thought about, and um, I think that that film is such a great um, parallel to the to the movie itself. Um, man, yeah, I, I really like how naturalistic the setting is, like how desolate it looked, and um, yeah, even like being at the the train tracks, like there there just isn't much for them to do there, and uh, yeah, I liked that feeling of like being absorbed into uh, Anna and Isabel's world, and especially Anna since she is the um, like the main focal point of the story like we look at everything through her eyes and uh, of course we get a perspective of um, her parents her um, her mother Teresa who is a um, very young wife of Fernando and Fernando who is this uh, aspiring writer I think is he I think um, yeah uh, I, th I find it interesting that, like, I, I haven't um, read Frankenstein in a while, but there is a prologue in there where there is an exchange of letters, or, like, um, someone is writing a letter, and they're, they are somewhere in, like, some desolate place. kind of reminds me of the film itself, because there is, like, a monologue of someone uh, reading a letter out loud. Um, yeah, that's just my first impression so far. The first impressions that I got of the movie were, I think, very similar to everyone else's. Um, especially, like, the point was brought up where, you know, it's this very desolate village in post in the post-Civil like War of, of Spain. And you have all these children who are, in some way or another, being affected by the outcome of this war. And you see, like, very subtle influences of the Franco regime to slowly creeping in and controlling things. And I mean, Richie brought up a good point. Like there's not many, there's not many landmarks in this small village. Like there's the train tracks, there's the train station, the, aban the abandoned uh, house. Um, and then the central hub of the village. And then you have Anna and Isabel's home, which is a little bit more, I'd imagine on the outskirts of the village because their father is a little bit well off. Um, he seems like he has a bit of influence with um, with the local political organization around there, or at least he's trying to get by. I think that he's a former leftist, but is passing as a supporter of the Franco regime along with um, his entire family. Um, but yeah, just that... Just that opening shot, like Tyler mentioned, like just seeing the 
cart roll in, and oh, I got. I I felt it. It took a while. It took a while for me to like actually ease into the tone, because although the movie as a as a whole was rather melancholic at times, I think that it was very touching, and it made me feel as if I had discovered a part of like my own childhood watching this movie and what it felt like to be a child, and. Like Pat said, like you know the propensity for play, like when Isabel and Anna are like coming home after the movie, and they're like pretending to be the monsters just to scare one another. It's like, no, I think you're right. Like we do lose that energy over time, and it's like it makes me think about for what reason. Like, is it because of society, or because of like uh, the influence that we have on one another, or is it because of the way that we hide those features away? I'm not entirely sure, but um, I, the moment that Frankenstein or James Whale's Frankenstein appeared on the screen, I felt so enamored with the movie because Frankenstein is one of my favorite books that I've ever read. Um, I first read it in high school, and I've never seen the movie or any of the other uh, spinoffs of of those movies, and. But it's something about the book where you just have this creature who was brought into existence and they're just trying their best to discover the differences between life and death. And there's this one very touching moment in the opening scenes where, you know, you see uh, Fernando working on his beehive, you know, just to pass the time because that's what he loves doing. And then you have... um, uh, his wife writing out a letter to her former lover but in the meantime you have Anna and Isabel watching this movie the scene where there's this little girl in front of a pond and she's picking flowers and then you have Frankenstein's monster slowly coming up to her and although she's rather scared about the monster approaching her she ultimately embraces the, f- the other in a sense, by offering up one of her own flowers to him. And that moment that it happens, there's just this glow inside of Anna's eyes, and it's a, it's a really tight close-up of her face. And it literally looks like you're seeing magic be born within her, and to the point where she ends up believing it. And from that point onward, you see how deeply moved she is by this movie for both the sweeter moments and some of the more confusing moments that cause her to have a sort of existential crisis in a way at such a young age of like either six or seven. And I think that the the exploration of the Saul is what made this movie for me. Yeah, you touched on a big part of the film for me as well as a viewer as well as like I think you're meant to feel like Anna is uh, early on I was trying to decipher Teresa's relationship with who she's writing the letter with and all the other stuff and you get the under you get the undertones which is the hints much like a child would when they're not sharing that with you that uh, Teresa's and Fernando's relationship is on the rocks or it's like it's already distanced 
but they're still together for the kids and all that, and you you don't see them spend time together. You hear Fernando talking about that quote from his book, or is it an experience he had with Teresa? Or like, uh, he showed her the glass beehive, and she looked away in disgust. All she saw was death. Yeah, and she's a misanthrope and all that. I think that's from her, you find out later. But, uh, it's such a, uh, it's not just a, it captures the childhood innocence and all the aspects. But at the same time, like, it's very much, like, a big part of the film I sat there, like, trying to decipher everything. Like, is this person wearing the wedding ring in this shot? Are, are they not? Who's the letter to? Like, when, yeah, I'm trying to read the locations on the letters real quick as the film's playing. Just because I want to know, like, it's so, like, the pace is so, not slow, but it's so deliberately slow. And it only shows so much deliberately that you get a bit of, you feel, yeah. You get a frustration building in you, but that's not what the film's about, like, solving the mysteries. But you want to solve them, and you feel, I think you, the film makes you feel very much like Anna. Just about a lot of the interrelationships in the external world and how it's changing. As well as Teresa's, not, uh, Isabel. She has some, she's less of the protagonist, but she has some heartbreaking stuff happen. Where that, you can see that she's having her own internal conflicts, and it's, it's manifesting itself. We see physically on the screen, but like you can only imagine the internal turmoil she's feeling in those scenes. And it's, it's genuinely like unnerving moments. And yeah, the film's just a real mood piece, a real. It's like a combination of things that gives like a melancholy feeling for childhood, or just is ambivalence the word I'm thinking of? Yes. Yeah. It's a very good way of explaining it. There's a lot of sweet moments, and there's a lot of moments where you see the undertones and. The, yeah, the external factors forcing these girls to grow up more so than they should. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you made a really good point of uh, Kevin saying um, how you felt like you discovered like a part of your childhood. I don't know if it's like if that's how I felt, but it was like almost like rediscovering, you know, where it's just the the world around them when it comes to like the the Franco regime is is coming into play, right, and then. Yeah, it's just all these external factors, especially with your parents. Um, I also, like, their, it, Anna and Isabel's relationship reminded me a lot of just growing up because I have a sister who's, like, three years younger than me, so pretty much the same age gap, I want to say. And I just was, like, hit with, like, so many memories of just, like, me and my sister. Like, not that, like, my parents were, you know, similar to uh, Fernando and... Uh, Teresa, even though they ended up getting a divorce, but um, it would, yeah, it's just, it's, it's weird um, having that feeling again, I guess, like forcing, not forcing, but like, you know, I think, yeah, the outside factors in the world as children is the reason why we have to grow up and lose that sense of being a kid and, you know, just that innocence, I guess. Yeah, I really, I think what captivated me the most about this film was um, Anna's performance. I thought that um, for a six-year-old, she's probably like the best performance I've ever seen from a, a child actress. Um, I can only think of like maybe 
a couple others, like maybe uh, like from The Shining. But other than that, like this one was incredibly endearing. Um, it's hard not to look at like her uh, her eyes, you know, like what Kevin said, like when we have shots of her face. Um, I, for me, like, I can kind of see myself like in her eyes, like like wow. Um, it said so much, you know, because she doesn't really have to say much. You can just kind of feel, um, yeah, like the ambiguity behind it. Um, and the film has such like strong visuals, especially when um, we see what Fernando is up to, and he is um, sta uh, standing by the is it like the balcony or like the door? where you can look out. Um, you can see like the visual of like how it looks like a honeycomb. Um, I thought that was an incredible like visual to look at. And um, yeah, like the rest of the film just feels dreamlike and poetic um, compared to the first like 10, 15 minutes of the film. Cause it came off very uh, naturalistic, desolate, um, kind of more um, joyful with the music, like, oh, it's school time, and, you know, I felt happy, and then, um, but the film isn't like that the rest of the way, and I, I, that's what I liked about it, is that, um, it's not a film for children to watch, just like how, uh, when the kids watched Frankenstein, it's not for film for, for kids. Uh, yeah, I found that very powerful. Like, we all experience something that some people may not deem appropriate, but maybe we have to in order to, like, get us to that point of, uh, I don't know, self-reflection. I think that's what Anna was going through. Um... Obviously, she's going through something traumatic and watching that, asking her sister, uh, why did Frankenstein kill the little girl and then why did the village kill Frankenstein? And it makes me think like, dang, who is Frankenstein in this story? Um, well, no, I mean, Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster. I don't mean Frankenstein like the scientist. Um, but for me, like, Fernando almost comes off as like maybe Frankenstein and... Anna is his like little creation and she's just wandering around in her own fantasy world and they are like the visual of the the clock and the, and the music that comes from it and for me that reminds me of like a fracture in Anna's fantasy world because when it comes back into play again it's really yeah it's it's touching like it it's like profound and uh, I'm still thinking about it, so uh, I can definitely see the influences from this film. And I forgot to mention that this is the first uh, Spanish film that we we're reviewing. Um, and uh, Victor Arise doesn't really have a, few, uh, a large filmography, but uh, I've read he definitely has a huge impact on cinema. And I can see how... A filmmaker like uh, Guillermo del Toro is influenced by his work. And even 
with uh, a few films under his belt. You you bring up a really good point of um, Victor Rice's, um impact on cinema as a whole because and also bringing up Guillermo del Toro because according to him he claims that that version of Frankenstein the one that was made in the 30s like he I was watching an interview with him and he said that that look inside of Anna's eyes like he like as you mentioned as well like you, he, you how you saw yourself in her eyes in a way he felt the same exact way, and he said that that was the reason why he actually got into movie making and stuff was because the birth of magic that takes place inside of a child's head when they watch something as profound as that. And, I mean, even discussing Pan's Labyrinth, which is, I would consider, a spiritual remake of of The Spirit of the Beehive, but amplified with a more... Uh, fantastical element, whereas this movie is very much in the vein of magical realism, which was a very strong movement in both, uh, I mean, in, in like the Spanish culture as well as Hispanic and Latino culture and just all across um, those areas. Um, and there's something so strange because... It, it reminds me of um, this one book I read called A Hundred Years of Solitude. And that's another one that touches upon magical realism where everything is based inside of this small town. Like, not even a town, but a village. And there's not much around there. Yet, in the minds of all the characters, the world is just so filled with this fleeting energy that almost like a wind that as it brushes through the town everyone feels it brushing against them like blowing up the dust inside of them or whatever it is and yeah I feel like we can talk <laughs> I want to talk more about uh, uh, the, the similarities between Pan's Labyrinth and this movie, but I feel like it's probably better to do so towards the end after we discuss like all the spoilers and stuff. Um, a few last things that I want to talk about before we head into spoiler territory are like some of the, the aesthetics that um, you brought up as well, Richie, with the, um, the honeycomb patterns and like the entire movie. There's this; it's just bathed in like this warm yellow light that permeates throughout every single scene even when it's no longer there but you can still feel it and and just the perspective of the camera itself like there's not many shots that move i mean if they do they're on like a dolly but they're usually locked off for the most part and for the for another thing too is that the camera is almost always at on his eye level when it's showing her as opposed to like looking up or or looking down on her or looking above at her or like it, it does not have an adult perspective in mind and another thing that you mentioned too um was how this is not a movie for children even though it deals with children and their perspective and almost like a loss of innocence 
as they witness these strange occurrences happening around them, like how you mentioned, Tyler, like of not necessarily knowing what it is or how to interpret it, but all you can do is just watch and take it in. And I, I find that so... Like, there's a part of me that just feels so... Like, it's even hard to talk about because I can just feel it inside of me where... I don't know. It touches something that... I, I feel like we... I mean, it's mentioned before how we lose this feeling, but... There's so much ambivalence towards it. I have no idea how to interpret it. But um, with that said, uh, I, you guys want to give our ratings for it? All right. I'd, uh, I'd give the film a four out of five. Like uh, the, all the aforementioned reasons, the art direction, uh, a lot of beautiful shots. A lot of stylized shots, as well as just uh, a story that really hits close to home, close to the heart, and just it's such a unique film, especially for 72. Like, yeah, this is Hollywood in the West is like getting experimental finally, but this is already feels miles ahead, or I know it's three years after the Renaissance begins, but it still feels like its own thing completely, like even compared to the modern films still stands out as unique and I have trouble thinking of other films like it like yeah Pan's Labyrinth is similar but it's not similar at also but yeah I just highly recommend this film um I probably I was thinking the same four out of five uh it's just yeah it's just a beautiful film like the warm tones to it you know even it's weird because it almost feels like like the melancholy of it, it makes it feel like it should be like colder tones, but like that beehive vibe to it, um, it's just unique. And Anna and Isabel's performance, like you said earlier, Richie, I would I would agree with you. I think it's probably the best performance I've ever seen of a of a child actor actress that young. Um, and yeah, it, you, like you said too, Pat, it just hits it hits close to home. You know, it's like makes you want to be a kid again and it's also it gives you that sense of melancholy where you're like man what how did i lose that uh that sense of being a kid so yeah this is a good good movie i would definitely uh suggest to people but yeah four out of five um yeah for me um I don't know, it was kind of hard for me to think of a rating after I finished it or think of like, oh, how to review it, what do I give it? It's like, it's not really a film that I look at and think like, oh, I can change certain aspects about it. Because um, it doesn't have like any tropes. It's not, you know, it's not an American film. Um, it seems pers like a personal film and especially with the, the era that it takes place in um i believe victor arise was born in 1940 
and that's the the year that the movie is taking place in and it has a lot to do with how he grew up so um it's hard it's harder for me to decipher that because i haven't done any like research on like the, the the spanish like civil war that happened and like the aftermath and whatnot um but uh with that said um i thought the film was incredibly endearing um yeah and his performance just captivated me I like the ambiguity and mystery behind um, like what Teresa and Fernando are doing in the film. Um, man, I don't know. There's something very bittersweet about it, uh, and it makes me immediately like want to watch the film again right after, um, just to um, pick up on some things that I uh, couldn't decipher the first time around. Um, but right now, I'm probably going to give it a 5 out of 5. Um, I still need it to simmer in my mind. And, um, yeah, like what everyone's saying, especially Tyler, like, like rediscovering your childhood or like um, being nostalgic for, you know, for those days. And like Patrick said, like, it's about that innocence that we had and how... We can look back on that, but like we don't really have that anymore because of everything that we've been through and how the world is much darker um, than it really is. And Anna discovering that is uh, heartbreaking to me. And um, yeah, just I think it's such an incredibly beautiful and nuanced film. Um, I think, well, I watched this movie a few days ago, and I'm really glad I did, because usually I watch them, like, the day beforehand, um, because I, I tend to forget a lot of the details easily, and I like going into our discussions with, you know, a fresh mind, and, uh, a lot of the initial impressions that I get off of it before I can like fully decipher it and analyze it. But this movie has been on my mind every single day since. And there are some scenes that I like, look, I like remind, rem remember and I can't help but like get worked up about it because it's just so goddamn beautiful. And I'm going to have to agree. I'm going to give it a five out of five. Um, it's been a while since I've seen a movie that has touched me this deeply, <laughs> and yeah. So with that being said, uh, I'd say we all give the film, uh, a recommendation. We just should definitely see it. Um, it's streaming on the Criterion, um, and that's how I was able to watch it. Thanks, Kevin. Um, it's free on YouTube too, right? Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. And yeah, somebody uploaded it recently. <laughs> oh cool. Yeah, so the, there's also a, a you know full film on YouTube. You can um, check it out. Um, so yeah, now we're going to dive into the film on a much more deeper analysis. So uh, if you've gotten this far, definitely check out the Spirit of the Beehive. And um, if you're listening to us on iTunes or Spotify, well, especially iTunes, um, definitely give us a, a review. Um, you can send us questions 
to our Instagram or Gmail at layfilm, uh, podcast at gmail.com. Um, so yeah, let's get right into it. setting parts of the film for me was uh, Isabel's and Anna's the separation that begins to form and the anxiety Anna feels about that I think it's visually communicated we see it was like the prank by Isabel and Anna but then we see the moment where Anna's or Isabel's alone I think she's the older sister and uh, for some reason she's she's like I don't know if it's pent-up frustration because she knows more. She's able to pick up more cues than Anna is. But, like, she, like, harms the cat. Or it could just be general, like, empathy being developed in her where she harms a cat and then scratches her finger and then she uses the blood on her thumb to, like, apply lipstick and she's looking at the mirror and she could be having a crisis about, like, maturing or hitting her teenage years or, you know. She's clearly struggling with the fact that She's got to grow up and become a woman versus what she's currently now playing with Anna. And then the, there's a great scene, I think, shortly after that. It could be the prank where there, Isabel and the other girls are jumping through a bonfire, a garbage fire. And Anna's just, like, sadly watching from the distance with, like, concern for Isabel. And it's just, like, a very stylized scene and all that. And, yeah, just really, like, oh, man... You feel Anna's, like, anxiety, but you don't fully understand it because the visuals are just, like, you can interpret what it means, but the visuals are just more, like, it's like a fear of her being hurt, but you know it's more than that. It's not just, it's not she's going to fall in the fire. It's more like, oh, the the pain she feels is the separation between the two. It's just like, oh, man, <laughs> it just really hit. I don't want to spoil that, but since we're in the spoilers, like, that part jumps out looking back on the film just honest performance and just sadly sitting there on the side <laughs> big old watery eyes it's like oh this, <laughs> this sucks and the film gets experimental and like it freeze frames with her over the fire at one point and then goes to the next scene just yeah so stylized so that's one of the f- moments that stands out of like oh man I'm gonna chime in on that scene that's probably my favorite scene of the movie as well, or like one of the standout ones, um, because even beforehand, just witnessing all of the, all of the things that Anna has seen, and then going like, because this, I believe it takes place after the prank as well, and just to see, I mean, Pat, like how you mentioned the distance bet- growing between them, and you see all the older girls playing at like, I think it's Fernando who's burning. A bunch of wood out back and you see all these older girls getting excited over it and to the point where like Fernando like disappears because he you know he has other stuff to do and then they're all just 
they're all just jumping through the flames and stuff and like <laughs> with uh, long dresses on yeah and and at one point like i think isabel jumps through it and you could see like the flames actually catching on her a bit yeah and like you said pat like anna just like <laughs> the shot is so sad because it's like a very distance but very objective view of what is going on you just see this little girl walking into frame slowly just oh, just full of like wonder and like taking in the sensory overload of not knowing how to feel and she just sits on like this very small like stoop just watching them jump and this is the moment where i realize that isabel is i mean she she's obviously going through like a sadistic streak of you know, inflicting pain and emotion upon others in order to feel something herself, which is why she's jumping through the flames. But soon after, like, the, the fire dies out and you see all the, like, there's nobody else there and it's it's getting to be dark where, and then Anna's just sitting in front of the dying flame, like, finally having enough courage to, like, go up to it. And she's just tossing small twigs into it. And also, like, just trying to discover what it was that all these older girls were feeling. Because she wants to feel it as well. But I feel like she's different in that she doesn't enjoy it. Um, she doesn't laugh. She doesn't do anything. She just casually tosses them in and watches them burn. Almost as if she's, like, trying to discover... Or... I guess interpret her own mortality and then to see her her nanny come in and she's like what are you doing here child and it's like clearly you can see that Anna is neglected like she's just left to her own you know left to fend for herself and nobody watches her nobody does anything and then here you have this this older woman like coming in like being a very gentle motherly figure and like, and I feel like she knows what's going on. She knows that Anna's going through some stuff, and Anna doesn't want to even like leave. She just keeps tossing the twigs in the fire, in the fire, but not in a malicious way. And she ends up, you know, saying, "Come on, let's go." And then Anna's just like looking back at the fire as they leave, and she's so heartbreaking. Oh my god! <laughs> oh yeah, we framed it. Another great part of the film is like even the fire and Isabel jumping through it give you multiple meanings, but I think predominantly it's their relationship. But like even the Franco anxiety of war, the war that's on the horizon, and the even their parents' relationship, like the inevitable, like the mother and father figure appear to be distance. It could be like a yeah, it could be all representative of Anna's anxiety that distance is going to form between them like that, or like, is the family going to separate? Who's going to go to who? Who's going to go where? Or it could just be like, is Isabel, is the war going to come here? Is Isabel going to be in the war? Is she going to be a victim of the war? It's just, there's so many readings on it, but predominantly it's, I think it's about the relationship. I just wanted to chime that in just to show, well not show, but like as an example of like the depth the film has where it's, you have to think a lot about it. And I, I, I watched it a couple of days ago and I'm trying to think a lot about it still. Uh, for me, I think that the film is about um, the trauma that comes after the war 
when people come home, or um, in Anna's case, um, she is dealing with some trauma uh, with like coming home, like either from the film uh, Frankenstein or her encounter with the um, soldier. We know that uh, she doesn't come back as the same person um, every time or after every experience. Um, and e or even her uh, experience in um, being pranked by her sister, um, Isabel, when she yelps and Anna goes into the room and sees her sister on the floor uh, lying face down. And for a moment, I thought something happened too. I was like, oh, wow, like, did something crazy happen? Or like, you know, is it the spirit? Or, you know, like, I was there with her. And I was even wondering that too, and I'm sure she was as well. And um, I think that's why this film is so powerful because it really like gets me to empathize with Anna and like be there and look at everything from her lens. And yeah, for me, I think it is about like her emotional trauma. Um, I don't. You don't really see her be a kid, uh, be happy or joyful. Like all of that is gone after like the first 15 minutes. Um, she's just filled with curiosity and like all these questions about the world, you know. Uh, I'm sure this, the same questions that she had about Frankenstein, it was the same about um, the soldier. And I thought that was such a, a devastating part of the film, like... I was wondering where it was going and then when that uh, scene came in where um, he was running away and she stumbles upon him uh, and she wants to help him and I think it's because she in a way like wants to help Frank uh, Frankenstein's monster and um, we even see her even before all of that like looking for something like looking for Frankenstein's monster she was looking in the well um, yeah, she just like, like what, you know, Kevin, you said, um, she's just all alone, just wandering around, being neglected by her parents, and even her, her own parents are all on their own, it's like, they're all going through something, and I think it is about that trauma from the war, like, everyone's experienced it, and especially Teresa, where... I believe when she went to the train station, she sees her former lover. I, I think that was her, or someone like she on the, the soldier. Yeah, I'm not sure who that was, or if she actually really knew him. But I, I thought there was probably a connection there, um, that uh, connected by like closer to the end of the film when she burned the letter. Um, yeah, there's just some things about the film that I would have to rewatch and like build up my own conclusions because I wasn't exactly sure about everything or or the scene where Teresa was um, pretending to sleep and it was just this like really long take for like a few minutes. Um, it just made me wonder what was going on or like what's she doing and who is she watching. Um, 
I got a, I got a big old conspiracy. What was it? Anna is not Fernando's son, daughter. Yes. Yeah. I was thinking that too. Mm-hmm. That's okay. We're all in the same. Because, yeah, her hair is darker than Fernando's is orangish blonde, Teresa's is blonde, Isabel's is blonde, and then Anna's is a dark black, or just, yeah, just at least dark brown. And then when we see the leftist fighter, I believe he's a resistance fighter when Teresa's corresponding with him in the film in Nice. And, uh, yeah, he's a suave, thin mustache, dark black hair man, and Anna's the younger of the two daughters. So if there was an affair, it makes sense for her to be the product of it versus the first daughter. And, yeah, I was like, I wondered if even Anna's aware of that because she could see her own hair and she can see the distinctions between her and the others, as well as I believe she's looking through the family photos and she's seeing the... The uh, I forget his name, or if it's even mentioned, but her, my conspiracy theory, her father, <laughs> and like former photos of Teresa as a student, I believe. Yeah, I just wanted to. That was one of those things where like it took a while for it to click about yeah like with the scene with her the Teresa laying in bed, like there's a clear like something's between them hardly or there's a hard something in the relationship. Like, she does pretend to be asleep when Fernando comes in. Like, you can see a silhouette on the wall behind her. And it's just such, like, a... Like, oh, man, like... Think back to the times you've pretended to be asleep when someone else comes in. And, it's like, it's not a good... It's not a good place to be, but it's, like, you're clearly not comfortable with that person at that moment. That you feel the need to pretend something like that. Where it's, like, oh... <laughs> it's just, so many small cues are just... But, it's, yeah. Just communicates all this stuff. I think it says a lot since you don't see the actors all together at once in the film. Um, like Teresa with Fernando, like you don't really, you don't see them together at the same time. Um, yeah, unless like they're at the, like the dinner table, I believe that's like maybe one of the few rare moments when they were all together. But other than that, um, Throughout the story, everyone is just kind of in their own headspace, their own little journey. Um, yeah, that was an astute observation that you brought up that I didn't think about. That Anna could be like a product of maybe either like the war, before the war or after. Um, and that's why she has all these questions and... Uh, yeah. Yeah. Towards the end, it does get a little, uh, like, just heartbreaking. <laughs> um, like, so when the soldier, I thought that was a great scene when we're at, what is it, a sheep house, I think is what they called it, the abandoned house, and Anna goes to visit him a few times, gives him her dad's jacket and the his pocket watch and then i think it just transitions to nighttime right and then all of a sudden i don't know just like cold like the, one of the most oh, yeah. cold killings just like you just see like five like machine guns just pop off like so quick and so and then you know she goes back finds the blood and you know re- realizes what happens and i think that was just the most like that's just like devastating that's like her innocence is gone 
like after everything and she runs away right she starts to run away from her dad mm-hmm. and yeah it was so sad to me I was like she's just running away from the world like the real world and all these terrible things that can happen so that just hit me hard I was like man to be a kid oh yeah, that's that, tough that was really uh, upsetting to me because when they do find her and Teresa is obviously um, upset and devastated but like you know they got her back home um, the doctor was telling her how she'll forget or like you know like she oh she's still alive that's all you have to be happy for and you know she's young she's still coming into her own it's okay she'll forget and i'm just thinking to myself like no man no, like, <laughs> uh yeah as a child like you don't forget um an event like that in your life like there are things that happen to you when you're young that will always stick with you and um yeah, I don't imagine that being something that Anna is ever going to um, forget. And that's why she was so distant and, like, she was dissociating herself from her own family. Um, yeah, that was tough, seeing that in the end um, with her sister coming up to her and her just, like, not even interacting with her. And then she goes up to the uh, to open the the door in her room and to like call out for the spirit. It's like, dang, you know, like she really feels alone in her world and like wanting a friend. Yeah, and yeah, that was uh, man. I feel for her. I interpreted that bit differently like what the doctor says like that's a bit of the thing like it'll that moment will stay with her forever but i think he's like referencing like it'll harden her it'll numb her to the stuff that kids like feel so deeply about or that their capability to feel that not directly means that she'll get over the trauma but like that experience itself is going to take away a bit of that and we see it with isabel like she doesn't interact with isabel but for me the ending is like a little silver lining where Anna does still have a bit of that where she calls out the spirit. Like she still has a bit of that innocence or just faith or whatever aspect it could be of her that she hasn't lost yet. Her naivete. Yeah. It was all, yeah. It's, it was a sweet ending for me. Yeah, I don't know. I just did not see it as optimistic or sweet to me. It was more bittersweet. More like, yeah... It'll make her stronger, but I don't know. Is it really something worth? Um, I don't know. I don't see it as a silver lining. That's just, for me, not something that I would ever want my child to go through. I wouldn't want my child to be like, hey, go do this tough event so that you can be a tougher adult when you grow up. I don't know. That's not... um, I don't know, maybe I just see it differently. I don't... I think that that is what shapes you, both good and bad. Yeah, there can be good things to interpret from that. There could be a silver lining, but I think it's detrimental, especially for a little child to go through that. Um, I think the the older you get, 
and I don't know, it, it weighs on you. But when you deal with something traumatic at certain parts of your life, you deal with them differently. And for her to deal with it so young at six years old, um, I can't imagine that being something positive to take away. I'm saying more just the fact that she still had that capacity or innocence after that experience. Not that she shouldn't have gone or she should, she needed to go through it, but like the experience happened regardless, but the fact that she still has a bit of the wonder in her. Yeah. To me, that's like, okay, at least she has that still. She she still has, Mm -hmm. yeah, her, her innocence. She's still six. Even if it is out of loneliness, she's reaching out. The fact that she can still believe she can reach out to a metaphysical, whatever. Yeah. Instead of just being completely crushed. It's like, okay, that's, yeah. I mean, I'm sure it, 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 it's going to age her emotionally. Um, but I think with her, with that moment of her calling out for the spirit, um, could potentially like stunt her emotional growth as she grow, you know, as she develops as an adult later on in life. But I'm just speculating. I'm not sure. I'm just from perspective, like, sure we all go go through some things growing up but for me like i don't know i still think about things when i'm when i was a kid or you know when you feel neglected or alone you you remember the times when you're calling out for someone and they're not there and uh i don't know those are the things that you remember Yeah, I think I kind of agree with both of you for the end. I think there was a silver lining with with Anna calling out to uh, Frankenstein again at the end. I also just love that shot, that final shot. Oh, my God. That was like, oh. I want that on like a poster. Yes. <laughs> that frame within a frame is just prime. Um but yeah, I think uh, I think it can go both ways, like you guys are saying. Um, I think yeah, it's obviously you know it's kind of hard. You can't be a sheltered child. You know, everyone ha- will have to go through trauma. It's I think it's impossible to not. And if you didn't ever go through trauma, then I wonder what kind of like adult or person you would come into. You know, so. I think it's, it can be good and bad. Yeah, That's a really I, good point. I think it's a privilege. If you don't have to go through something like that, you must have a pretty um, healthy life. Like, Because look at Fernando, look how he's living. He's very comfortable. You see the place that they live in, and then when they leave and they run around and play in the village, like they don't have much outside of that. Um, yeah. I think that um hmm. for the entire for the entirety of the movie one of the one of the main focuses of it that I found myself relating to all too much was um Anna's discovery of herself as Frankenstein's monster. I, th- I think you, re- you mentioned it earlier, Richie, about how um, 
you felt like Fernando is Frank is Frankenstein himself, like the doctor and Anna is this creation of having to, I don't know. She's her hand isn't being held as she's going out throughout life. Um, I mean, for the, for there's this one very sweet scene between, and I feel like it's one of the few moments that we actually get between Fernando, Isabel, and um, Anna, where they're walking through the forest, and he's teaching them about the varieties of mushrooms that grow out in the forest, and how because that's that's another one of Fernando's pastimes is uh, is studying mushrooms. Because his, uh, I believe it's his father or his grandfather. Grandfather. Yeah, his grandfather. Yeah, like he, he also took him out into the woods when he was a child. And I feel like this is Fernando's very strained way of teaching his daughters about how although, although you could see something as beautiful as a mushroom um, growing out in the woods on its own, there and it's it, it's very hard to distinguish at times the difference between a benevolent mushroom and a malevolent one, because I believe that they come across one where it's one that is safe to eat, and then another one where he is purposely trying to get them to determine if it is a harmful one or not, and I believe that their inclination is to decide that it's you know just the same as all the other ones that they've come across. And Fernando makes it a point to tell them, no, although this one looks safe, this one will kill you very quickly. This is probably one of the most deadly mushrooms you can ever come across. And as they're about to leave for the day, Fernando looks off into the even further recesses of the forest where it's very dense. And you can tell that for all the for for both Fernando and Teresa, there are little bits of um of i guess safe houses inside of them where they do almost have like greenhouses of these beautiful plants still growing within them but they don't let anyone else see them and fernando like we get a we get a glimpse of this when he uh builds up this story about how his grandpa called it um this area i think i think it's called like I forget what he calls it, but he, he basically refers to it as like a paradise or like um, where a certain type of mushroom exists, but you have to travel quite a few hours in and how ultimately one day he wants to take them there. And even with Teresa, like in the beginning of the movie, she's writing this letter to her former lover in the hopes that he's still alive. And it trails off with this one scene, I mean, with this bit of dialogue where she's writing about how her home is, like, although she's been there for quite a while and how she's getting by with Fernando and Isabel and Anna, she feels like the walls are very different for some reason and how they would be unrecognizable to this person that she's writing to. My guess is that they were together and they... I'm not entirely sure, but um, in the letter she writes, but sometimes when I look around me and see so much loss and so much destruction and so much sadness, something tells me perhaps our ability to really feel life has vanished along with all the rest. And then we see her pause for a bit and just look out the window. And 
it also ties in when Anna is going through the family album that was mentioned earlier by Pat. Um, and she's discovering the differences between herself and everyone else in her family. She comes across a photo of Teresa that I'm, I'm also in the, in the belief that Anna's father is the fugitive that was running off into the safe house. I don't, I don't know if that's what everyone else thinks. I'll, I'll touch upon that and just say, um, uh, but he writes to Teresa and we see, or we hear Anna mouthing out the words to my dearest misanthrope or to my dearest myth- misanthrope. And I have a theory about misanthropy in general, where the people who tend, I'd imagine that the people who tend to despise human beings are the ones that were hurt the most in life by them because they were the most vulnerable because they were so willing to open up and accept and love all those around them. Yet they've been so hurt and disappointed and bludgeoned by the woes that have haunted them throughout their life that they were never able to fully recover from it to the point where they just accept it and become apathetic because that's their only coping mechanism which is where Teresa's at. And another bit where we catch a glimpse of this is when Anna is asking the question uh, to, to her mom about like, hey, what are spirits? And instead of allowing herself to channel into that childlike sense of wonder, she automatically goes into full protective mode or just glossing over it and saying, Oh well, good spirits tend to stick with good with good children, and bad ones tend to stick with bad children. Just very, a very didactic response, very black and white, not fully explaining because she doesn't believe that Anna is at an age to fully understand the gray area of life that we usually inhabit, and with Fernando. Um, I feel like he's also a disappointed idealist because he was a leftist and he had such a fascination with beekeeping. But when Teresa comes across it and just sees death, it tarnishes his entire view of it. And inside of his office, he has this very beautiful glass beehive where you can see everything inside of it. And that was like his pride and joy. But now all he can see is death when he looks at it. And it's so sad because he literally built it into his home where the bees can come and go outside of the home through like this this pipeway that we see Anna playing with throughout the movie. But um, the point that I wanted to touch upon earlier with um, Anna's, well, who I'm assuming is Anna's father um, because... The, the brief glimpses that we get of Teresa, she's always yearning for this former lover. And my guess is that the fugitive who leaped off the train inside of this town is her former lover. Now, I don't know if, that's, if that holds any weight or not, but what Pat was talking about earlier reminded me of it because... When he is hiding inside of the um, the abandoned uh, home or whatever it is in the village, he you know ends up you know 
Oh, I, I want to say he breaks his leg and, or breaks his ankle or something like that. It's a nasty cut, at least. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he's just hiding in this place. And I feel like you don't just jump off in this town. Like, because it's a very remote village. And he is very, like, was touched upon. Like, he's a very, like, suave-looking fugitive. Like, he, he looks like he was not... It looks like for one reason or another, he had to leave and join this liberation party. But because of the um, the loss, he's trying to go back and find Teresa. And it's... I feel like this theory makes it all the more depressing to me. Because... <laughs> yeah. yeah. And especially if, if he is Anna's father, because they do have similar features. And not even in, a, in appearance, but in the way that they view life. Because the only word that is spoken between the two of them is when Anna goes inside of the place and she's peering through the wall and it's one of the most endearing shots of the entire movie. And then we see him draw a pistol on her because he doesn't know who it is. And then all of a sudden he's like, oh, it's just a child. And then he lowers his guard and he's just cradling, cradling his leg. And clearly we see it's it's a... It's a callback to the opening shot of uh, or that we see of Frankenstein, where the child is giving the monster one of her flowers. And what does Anna do? She decides to reenact that, as it was mentioned earlier. And I don't know to tend to the monster to like care for him because she knows that life is terrifying, but it's better if you have a friend. And she gives him an apple that she brings from school, I, I believe. And all she says is here. And he immediately understands and takes it. And it's almost like a gift. Like it's this beautiful gift between just this complete open-hearted, pure soul to someone in need. And then the following day, like we see... Anna like disappearing like more and more off to this place and she brings him her father's coat and inside of it the fugitive finds the the uh, pocket watch that Fernando holds like very dear to himself and it has this very in a way it's it's a haunting tune it's I'm not sure but he whenever he opens it up he just listens to it and then automatically like closes it back up and it just cuts off abruptly but when the fugitive does this, he notices that Anna has such a like visceral reaction to it that it just stops her in her place. And then she looks up at him, almost like waiting for his next move. And he realizes this. And what does he do? He decides to take on his own persona that he holds dear to himself where he decides to play like a magic trick where he holds the pocket watch in one hand, flicks his hands and makes it seem as if it disappears. And then Anna has like this, the most touching smile approach her face, which is why I believe that they are related in some way or another. And if they are, like, if this is Teresa's former lover, it's all the more bittersweet when, as Tyler mentioned earlier, it's like that 
wide shot, just static. Anna leaving. You have Anna leaving the place, and then all of a sudden it just fades to sundown, and then you just see the muzzle flares, and then hear the, the machine guns off in the distance, along with a few bursts of, of his pistol. It's so sad. It's so sad. <laughs> I wanted to say, uh, he may be the father, but he's at least representative of the father to Anna. It's like the same thing, essentially. Mm-hmm. Just like the mushroom. I, I feel like like with Richie said with the Frankenstein's monster aspect for Anna, like yeah, the the scene where I think Fernando even crushes the mus- the mushroom that looks similar but it's not the same. I think Anna's having like a big, a big part of the thing is like the imposter syndrome, or just the feeling of like the civil war anxiety of the the removal of the resistance to those who are different, and Anna feels very different herself and her family. And like oh he's. Fernando's he's well meaning and like teaching him about the poisonous mushrooms versus the other ones but he still takes the time like to smush it out and crush the difference and then yeah just so much yeah I think that if that theory was true that just turns from bittersweet to just depressing to me um so it was right at the cusp of happening yeah and um and like again, another callback to um, Frankenstein is uh, a part in that book. Um, Frankenstein he or Frankenstein's monster runs away, and he comes across another family, and um, they're I believe like they were really nice to him at first until he was chased away, and it kind of reminds me of uh, the scene with the soldier, where um, on a uh, um, treats him kindly and um, he receives all this hospitality and then just for all that to be stripped away to be um, yeah and that's just all the more heartbreaking to me um, I think that's for me my favorite and most powerful scene in the movie um, yeah and I just couldn't believe like wow like this is how it ends and man it's just haunting like the images just like don't leave you like Anna looking into the the puddle and then seeing the image of Frankenstein's monster um I know that's not literally happening but she's probably like dreaming it you know being in that moment or being that little girl in the film and seeing herself in him yeah. I forgot about that shot. Yeah, that's exactly what you said. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, yeah, there's that part she's looking down the well, and then her features take on the monsters, and it's just the mo- image of the monster. Mm-hmm. I can pl- that went right over my head. Yeah. Uh, is Frank, towards the end, Frankenstein does make an appearance. Is that Fernando, mm-hmm. the actor who's playing Fernando? Or it looks similar. It kind of looks similar, right? Yeah, that was like I, know, I was thinking that too. Like, did he walk up and put on a costume and pretend? It's me, honey. Like you finally see me for who I am. I thought it was. It was like a, like a call because like Fernando clearly, his daughter or not, he clearly cares deeply for both the girls. Yeah. Like more so than we see Teresa in a certain extent. Your theory, I'm kind of with your theory now. Because remember, they they show Fernando the body and like just show him his face. Oh, oh, Tyler, yes. Oh, go on, go on. They please. just show him his face, and now that after everything you said, I'm like, fuck. You're probably right. Like 
Yeah, yeah it probably was. Like, hey, maybe like it, she had uh, Teresa had an affair, or maybe they had something before her and Fernando. But it seems like whoever the town knew that that was like he maybe was a part of the town before, or Teresa's um, like I don't know what a male mistress is, but. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I think I think you're right, and that just makes it gut wrenching. You're so right because like they just show him his face, and he just like yeah, he just he just confirms it. it. It's just nonchalant about it. Yeah, like, he doesn't even have like an emotional reaction to it. He just simply looks at it and is like, "Yep," and then he gets his coat, and then gets his pocket watch, and then leaves. Like, I feel like if if he truly didn't know who that person was he would have had a little bit more of a reaction, but this one felt so subdued. Yeah. I think that was like anxiety of being accused of being an ally of the resistance. That's also I was a good thinking, point I was too, thinking yeah. that too when I was watching it. I was like, oh, okay. Well, they, might, s- like, they might think he was like helping the fugitive or whatever. Yeah. But I don't know. Now with what you're saying, I'm like, fuck, maybe. Like with the face being shown to him, I was like, oh yeah, now I see... I see that as well, what you're saying, but my yeah. thing is, like, do we get a reaction of Teresa to the news, or does she ever find out? She doesn't find so. out. That's like the nail in the coffin for me, I feel that's missing. But I When she tosses the letter in the fire, that's, yeah, that's another one, too. But did she read it? I was, well, I, that's where I, that confirmed the affair at some level for me. It didn't seem like she read it. It didn't look like it was open. Okay, I thought she was she putting just... it back in the envelope and tossing it. Maybe, that could be it, too. It just looked like... No, wait. It was addressed just, to Nice, wasn't it? I, yeah, I couldn't read it. Yeah, it's hard to read. I think it's Spanish. It's hard to... Yeah, do. I was trying to look at it, but I'm like... I'm just going to watch it again, you know, later on and interpret that myself, but... Because if it's addressed to the guy and she burns on the fire, it's, it's okay. She must know. But if it's from him, from Nice, it's one of those things. So is it to or from? Yeah. And I'm just nitpicking here. <laughs> it's still the same for Anna, damn it. It's still heartbreaking. I, um, one other thing I really want to talk about is Anna's reflection throughout the entire movie of her slowly taking on or taking on the archetype of Frankenstein's monster. Because when we first see her, watching the movie, I I felt like she was identifying with the little girl in that opening scene. But slowly throughout the movie, she starts to realize that that is not who she ends up identifying the most with. It's with Frankenstein's monster. And like it was mentioned earlier, where, um, where she's asking Isabel as they're like going to sleep that day, like, why do they kill the or why did he kill the little girl? And why did they also kill him? And Isabel just plays it off as, oh, it's just a movie. They didn't really actually kill each other. But, you know, I've seen the spirit. Like, I, like he exists in, the, in this abandoned place out on the outskirts of the village. We can go there if you want. And then the following day, we see them just standing on top of this hill overlooking this barren field. Very desolate, very arid looking. But it just has this magical realism where you can just feel this energy permeating throughout this entire village. And it's just all the more elevated because they are children. And 
Anna ends up having this deep fascination with the place, whether it's the actual building itself or the well outside. Like we see her almost like performing rituals in her own head of like trying to conjure up the spirit to where she can ask it her questions that nobody else can seem to. Um, and we see one of the most, it's such a small scene, but it had such a profound impact on me. Is like when she sees the footprint in the mud and it's this giant, like in her head, it's giant and it can only match one person's, which is the monster. And it just gets her to further believe that the spirit does exist. And she's just, you could see it in her face so well that she does not know how to interpret it. And she's just standing there looking around trying to see if the person is out there. And then she ends up putting her small foot inside of the footprint. And that that only further solidifies like her transformation into this persona or adopting it. Because she's so young and impressionable. And as she witnesses like all these these very traumatizing acts throughout the movie of like whether it's Isabel performing the prank on her, making her feel like she's dead, or seeing all the other children dancing through the, the flames, or even at school where we see the teacher trying to make light of the world around her by having this strange looking uh, anatomical figure. I forget his name is like uh, Don Julio. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, Don Julio, and um, she has all the children like come up and or uh, and place like the lungs, the heart, and like all these different pieces onto the the figure. And at the very end, she has Anna come up and put the eyes on the figure. And there's this one video that I saw where it commented on this part, and it just constellated so many different thoughts that I had about it, where. Although the teacher is trying to make light of the war and its aftermath, she might not realize how deep of an effect that the reverberations of this horrifying time has had on the children around them. It's like you're having these kids like put these parts on this body, but you don't know like if they've seen like dead bodies like from the soldiers around them. Like, you don't know what toll it's taken on them, and you're having them just reef... Like, you're having them face it again and again without even realizing it. And all these... Like, you could just see all these events taking... Like, just weighing heavily on Anna as she feels more and more alienated and isolated in her own world to the point where all she can identify with is the monster because she just feels so out of place. Which is why when she does end up running away because she realizes that the people who she's grown up with can't protect her and can't show her the way, like, she just goes off and runs and sees this very dark reflection. And it's such a tonal shift in the entire movie because for the entire part, it's like very golden and sunny and organic feeling, but in the woods, it's very comforting yet cold and detached and haunting in a way it's very blue 
and she ends up just looking into the water. Like, this is, like, the final point where she's, like, transformed into this, into this creature herself, and it just echoes one of the frames once again where the monster and the child are standing or sitting by the pond, and as the monster has, like, this deep, harrowing look, like, Anna can't help but feel terrified. Like, she ends up, like, quaking and trembling as this monster, like, sits beside her and takes hold of her. And she doesn't know how to make sense of it, which is why when Fernando and the town end up finding her, she's almost, like, catatonic. She... Because her inner world and outer world no longer resemble each other, and she's unsure of which one to exist inside of. Which is why she disassociates, and... I don't know. This part, like, ended up having, like, a very deep impact on me. About how when you feel that you cannot exist in, in an outer world because it doesn't reflect your inner one, what are you to do? Do you keep living with the same mindset that you've had all along? Or do you try to adopt and take on these these coping mechanisms that Teresa has had of like burying it all away and just hating humanity? Or being like Fernando where he goes along with it and tries not to ruffle any feathers? Or do you be like Isabel where you inflict pain upon others? in order to feel something yourself. And I feel like Anna can't find any of, like she, she doesn't find any of these solutions all the better, which is like when she does come across that toxic mushroom in the forest at night, she doesn't do what Fernando does, which is stomping it out. She has nothing but compassion for it by like stroking it and just realizing that life is very precious Regard like some people aren't born to be monsters, they just are, and it's how we react to them that determines if they end up being a benevolent spirit or a malevolent one, which I think is what the film is going at. Like, it's how you react to these things. Because, especially in the book with of Frankenstein, I feel like the society ended up seeing what they wanted to see, which is this very disgusting, malevolent creature, yet the monster was one of the most intelligent, insightful, harmless beings. But he ends up killing the child in because he's so unaware of like his strength and it's so it just makes it all the more tragic. And I don't know. I think that I, I usually feel conflicted about um stories involving other stories inside of them but this is one of them that just only elevates it to a, a higher level i don't know it's so profound so profound yeah i need to bounce off off of everything you said about her outer world and especially her inner world uh where like I mentioned earlier, the the stopwatch um, plays a big significant part of the story because it comes up uh, at least a few times. And um, 
while she's living in this fantasy world, as, as soon as she um, sees it and hears it again um, from Fernando, like, uh, I think that's when her world, like, shatters. Um, that's when she becomes reclusive and wants to go back to her own little inner, like, fantasy world. Um, but that watches a reminder. It's symbolic of, like, time and reality and that this is real and she can't stay in her own little fantasy land forever. I think that's why she runs away. And, you know, she doesn't want to go back home. Like, everything she knew is just destroyed. Um, yeah, I just wanted to bring that up because I thought that that was uh, such a pivotal part of the story. And you know what's so odd about that scene where she does end up running off is Fernando doesn't even chase after her. Like, for the longest time, I was wondering, like, why didn't he chase after her? And I feel like it's because of his own inability to rescue her. Like, he realizes that there's just no way. The damage has been done. And that scene felt all the more painful, just seeing her disappear off into the distance <laughs> with that little cloak. Oh. Yeah. Just, like, seeing the, the aftermath and re the repercussions of, like, yeah, of everything that has happened to her. Um, yeah, that's why it's hard for me to, like, see it, and I guess, in a more optimistic light, just especially with the final shot. Um, although it was beautiful, it was still, to me, kind of grim, and, like, um, it was, like, blue, like, blue-grayish, mm -hmm. almost, and, I'm, you know, compared to, like, the earlier colors in the film where it was, like, yellow. And green um yeah it just reminds me of like other color palettes like in uh Alfonso Cuaron's like Children of Men with like a bunch of blue color like yeah blue colors like it represents like how melancholic and depressive that world is and, and, and for me the way I see it is her world is broken down by the end but yeah she still tries to remain that spirit, you know, she wants to keep that spirit alive. Uh, with that being said, do we have any closing thoughts for finishing up? Yes, I want to change my rating. I want to bump it up to four point five because uh, <laughs> like you guys brought up stuff time. I didn't even think about. <laughs> I feel I feel I actually was thinking the same thing. I was like, you know, after I feel like every time we want like do a movie and then talk about it i always end up liking it more after the fact so i'll do the same i'm gonna bump it up to four and a half <laughs> <laughs> just want that on the record that's why i like doing the podcast it makes you uh, appreciate just every movie we watch even if it's a bad movie you know um but yeah i uh that was just a great movie like sometimes i like to feel like melancholic and like cold and not like heartbroken but you know sometimes it's good to feel those things so like it's uh like a we get a sense of catharsis yes way, like from watching it um but yeah i think uh what was the director's name again uh victor Rice. victor Rice. i want to i i was reading um he has three other films right i think he has three other films and one's called el sor el sor 
that like that sounded pretty good so i want to check that out some of his other work mm-hmm. yeah um with that being said um I, I, I have a few I have a few closing thoughts. Um, you, you can close it. <laughs> all right. <laughs> um, I think that my take on the ending uh, matches up with the more optimistic look. Where um, throughout the entire movie, we see, or we are following Anna's journey to try and conjure up the spirit, and she holds on to Isabel's solution out of everyone else's where she says she repeats the mantra in a way as she's going out to this balcony, you know, calling out to the the world around her. She says, if you're his friend, you can talk to him whenever you want. Close your eyes and call him. I'm Anna. And then she looks directly into the camera and just closes her eyes, wishing, hoping for this, for this spirit to to come to her. And I was watching this video on um the actor who plays Fernando. He it was, it was quite a number of years afterwards. His name is um Fernando Fernand Gomez and he says that when when this, you know, around this time that the movie was being made, he was a struggling actor trying to find additional work and he had heard about this script from one of his uh, agents, or from somebody who was, I believe, the producer on the movie. And he's like, yeah, I'll, I'll take it on, um, because I you know, I need work. And he ends up uh, reading the script, and him and the, the person sit down once again. And he says, you know, I, I want to be very uh, direct with you about this. Um, although I do want to do this, I don't know if I fully understood the script. Like, I don't understand um, what's going on in it or my character, like, what his role in, it is, role in it is. And I'm not sure if I were to take this on that I would be able to fully embody it. And I just want to bring that up to you. And so the person says, okay, well, you know, give me a few days. I'm going to talk with the director about it. And so they end up having a few, or they end up having a meeting a few days later. He says, okay, so I sat down with the director and I told him your, um, the issues that you had with it. And he ended up saying, that's okay if he doesn't understand it. As long as it makes sense to me, then we can do this. And Fernando ends up saying later on in the interview that, of all the movies that he's made, this is one of the most standout ones to him, or that has had the most impact on, or I guess one of the most important movies that he's been a part of, because his character did not, like there was not much of a plot to the story. And Fernando in the movie, the the character, doesn't end up having much of a role inside of it. He's simply existing in a world. And that just made it all the more profound to me. And he ends up asking the question, or somebody asks him, oh, well, what do you think the spirit of the beehive actually is? And he says, I don't know. I still don't know. And I I wanted to comment on that question, like, what is the spirit of the beehive? Is it 
I mean, because he also gives like a, a very multi-layered response of, is it uh, Fernando? Is it um, the children? Is it all these different things? And I think that for my own answer, I think that it's Anna's metamorphosis into the quote-unquote monster. Um, I think that she is the spirit of the beehive, where out of everyone in the movie, she's the one that will come out of it only with further conviction of who she is as a, as a person. And although she's had a very traumatic experience, it's one that will make the soil in which she grows all the more fertile. And I think that she will fully... I think that as in this world, as Anna grows up, she maintains that childlike sense of wonder, no matter what the circumstances are around her. And I feel like that's the way to ultimately escape from the tragedies of life and to continue living. Because there's this book that I'm reading called The Myth of Sisyphus by Albert Camus. And his main question that he asks in it is, is life worth living in a very objective manner? Not a, not a cathartic, not an, one that's writing on pathos or anything like that. It's a very logical approach to the question of why do people commit suicide? And is it because life doesn't have meaning and all these different things? And I feel like as, well, the book embraces the idea of absurdity, which basically points out that there is no meaning and that you should relish in that because you're free to do whatever you want in that sense. And I feel like this plays into Anna's approach to life where she ends up embracing this part of her where it's the greatest tool that she has against the realities of life because she in her head she is free which means she is free to her in her reality no one can touch her and i feel like that's so beautiful and whoever she decides to let into her own world it's their own escape which i feel like the magical realism of this movie only elevates which is why it ties in so well to pan's labyrinth where we get a much more fantastical setting where it's much more visceral and in your face of these magical creatures. But as Pat said, they're two very different movies, definitely tonally visually, but they do touch upon the same exact themes because even in, I mean the spoiler for Pan's Labyrinth, if you haven't seen it already, close your ears or mute this. Um, Although we see Ophelia die in the physical world, she is free to exist in her own world that she creates. And I don't want to put, I don't want to shine that or cast a light on that where it seems like a coping mechanism, because in one sense it is, but in another it's so empowering because it's like, it's as long as it, it's all dependent upon one's attitude, how they view life. Because that's the only thing you can control, really, is your own perspective on things. Although things may be outside of your control, and forces may brush up against you during the walk that you take throughout life, I feel like as long as you maintain 
a certain attitude or outlook on it, nothing can touch you. And with that said, um, I'm going to close out this episode. So yeah, thanks for listening. Um, 12 episodes. Wow. (laughs) This is great. Um, it's always great hanging out with you guys. It's always cool showing or watching these new movies. And once again, if you have any recommendations, feel free to send them in to us at layfilmpodcast at gmail.com. Um, yeah. Or, or maybe even questions or you guys want to know more about the four of us and uh, what we do or what our tastes are or uh, anything. Yeah, definitely send us questions and again uh kevin and i really appreciated this recommendation uh i just yeah i just like going into everyone's recommendation cold with no idea or bearing of <laughs> what the film is going to be about and yeah i always come away with at least something to appreciate about it all right well That being said, uh, thanks for tuning in, everyone, and uh, see you next time.